Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, and the text will be on the screen as I read. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right. Good morning, church. Uh, first item of business, uh, kids, preschool to second grade, you may be dismissed for children's church. Uh, reminder to parents, either right before or right after you take communion to pick your kiddos up and bring them back to the service. If I've never met you before, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor here at Trinity City Church. I have some, some good news to announce. The first item of good news is that it snowed, and I am so happy. Uh, I am so happy winter's coming and like that cozy ceiling. Not everybody feels the same uh, way, but that's how I'm feeling. The second piece of good news is I have an update on uh, the campaign that your uh, bulletin highlights. We're doing a Project the Gospel campaign to raise uh, funds to have uh, two permanent projectors installed in this space. And I have uh, just received word this week that somebody is going to give us a $10,000 matching donation. So between now and the end of the campaign, which is the end of the year, if you donate, that will be doubled. So some good news on that front as well. Uh, I know some folks are visiting for the first time and you're in the middle, and actually more towards the end of a sermon series called A Wonderful Life. And uh, the framework of the sermon series looked at how the shape of the gospel and the good news of restoration that we are saved, that our character is transformed, and that our world will be made new, how that framework that we establish in those initial weeks shines light onto different areas of light to give you the good news and hope of restoration. And because of that hope and that news that even though we live in a broken world, that it makes your world come alive with wonder because of the glory of God and the work of, that he's doing in the world. So we looked at different areas of life the last several weeks. We looked at the mission of the church. We looked at the restoration of relationships. So we looked at family and friendship. We looked at work in that area of restoration in our vocations and our daily work. And last week we considered culture. Today we're looking at uh, the restoration of public life, specifically politics, and next week is our last sermon where we end where the scriptures end, and that is the restoration of all things and the promise about where the gospel is taking history. Uh, so then we get to Advent, and you're probably wondering what are we going to do next. We as a church often oscillate between topical sermon series like this one or the ones that are more thematic and books of the Bible. And then even when we do books of the Bible, we often go between Old Testament and New Testament. The last book of the Bible, if you don't remember, was, do you remember? 
<laughs> it was in the Old Testament book of Ruth is one that we, we considered, and it was a while ago. I'll forgive you for that. So we're back to the New Testament, and so the next New Testament book we're going to tackle is 1 Corinthians. So that's what we are going to start in the season of Advent. We actually won't be able to finish it before the summer when we switch back to our annual series of Somewhere in the Psalms or in the 70s of the Psalms. So we'll f- actually finish 1 Corinthians next fall. So there's a lot going on in there. Uh, we'll finish by looking at, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15 when he unpacks the doctrine of the resurrection. That will happen in the fall. There's a lot going on. There's, there's uh, controversial stuff that uh, 1 Corinthians brings up. It's this messed up church with folks that are making some interesting and curious decisions. But the reason I picked this book of the Bible is I know a lot of you are feeling as you look at the church more broadly that, that it, it feels like you know what, like, every, Christians are dividing, we don't agree on, on, like, foundational issues anymore, we don't agree on ethical issues anymore, and that was Corinth, that was what was happening in the city of Corinth when Paul planted a church there that it made it, had a good start, but it kind of went off the rails, and so he writes this letter, uh, and it wasn't the only letter that he wrote to Corinth, but it's uh, a, a big one that we, we know about, and he is just trying to guide them through that, and I think it's a very relevant uh, book for what we are, are looking at today. Um, so that's where we're going, and that's what's uh, going on next. So before we lean into a topic like public life and politics, we better pray. So let's pray, okay? Let's turn the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful that you have called this assembly of people here to lean into your gospel, lean into the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we recognize that it is your spirit that indeed has brought us here. And it is your spirit that is at work right now through your word and through your calling and through your power. And so we want to open our hearts and open our ears and open our hands to receive what you have for us today. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the last several weeks, as I mentioned, looked at how the good news of restoration shines in different areas of life, of friendship and family, work and vocation, and even culture. And now, as you consider today's topic of public life and especially political life, The word wonderful probably does not come to mind when you think about the political life or the public life. And then what I'm advocating for is how the gospel brings to us a wonderful life. You're like, how do those things even go hand in hand? How do they even go together? Because even the word politics is probably triggering for some of you folks, especially based on maybe the last two years of your experience. Not many of us would associate politics with the wonderful life. Politics is something that's divisive. It's tribal. It's breaking up family and friendships. It's one of those things that always overpromises and underdelivers. It's one of those topics that triggers in our hearts stress and anxiety rather than anything close to being wonderful. And it's one of those topics that we have covered before and a lot here at Trinity City Church. If you remember a year ago, was about the time of the presidential election. And when we uh, were doing a sermon series around that time, we did six weeks on faith and politics, six weeks on it. So here we are talking about it 
again. And so like, what new ground are we gonna cover here? I mean, some of you have been here for a while uh, and you might have been a part of some of these sermon series and some of you are brand new and you're like, I want six weeks right now. And that's kind of where things are at because some people are thinking like, I need more framework to how to think about that. I've never been in a church before that's maybe tackled that. And others of you have been here and you're like, I just, I kind of want to break. want to break from this topic. I don't want to hear about it anymore. And that's kind of what we're dealing with. So as I was thinking about preparing this message and what to do, and I didn't have six weeks, I have a sermon now to come back to this topic and to think about it again, or for some of you, maybe think about it for the first time. So the way I'm going to structure this sermon is to open with one question, and then as a congregation, I want to give you two charges in light of this topic of the restoration of public life. Because one thing we probably can all agree on as a starting point is that our public life, and politics in particular, is in need of some serious restoration. And so we can start there, but let me open this uh, sermon with this question. So the opening question is, why do we keep coming back to this topic? Why did you spend six weeks, about a year ago, unpacking this topic? It's because I think one of the biggest religions that threatens the Christian faith right now is the religion of politics on both sides, conservative politics and progressive politics, that it threatens the primacy and the supremacy of the Christian faith. Over the last decade plus of ministry that I've been a part of, I've seen people not only leave their local church over politics, but even put their political convictions at the center of their lives rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. I see an increase, not a decrease, in reverency and ardency towards political convictions and less excitement towards the ways of Christianity. In many people's lives, their political podcasts and the articles they read is what they indulge in more than devotional life. They have friendships, but only with those that are like-minded in their political beliefs because they can no longer hold together relationships with people that think differently than them. The Republican or Democratic platform has become now their confessional statement rather than the Apostles or the Nicene Creed. And in these instances, they have traded the lamb who was slain for a donkey and an elephant. So this keeps happening, brothers and sisters. I'm not making this up. So for me as a pastor who wants people to hold on to Jesus, crucified and raised from the dead, it's concerning when he is usurped by anything. And so that's why I want to keep leaning into it because I think this is not just a political realm that has nothing to do with the Christian faith or has no implications for how people live their Christian life. It is beginning to be this religion that continues to hit Christians off the track of centrality of Jesus Christ in their life. So that's why we keep coming back to it. In addition, maybe that doesn't describe you where you still very much have Jesus as Lord and he's in the center of your life. But the other thing I have noted, and some of this has to do with the church in general, that if we don't lean into a topic like this, then we also don't teach Christians how to think about the public life and political life in a distinctively Christian way. So the other issue that we're running into as a church is that this is kind of a weak muscle. 
It's a muscle theologically that we haven't worked out very much, and maybe the church hasn't done a very good job of, of teaching you a framework of how to work out, out this muscle so you are stronger to be able to apply your faith in this realm in a Christ-centered way. And one of the ways that you do that, the foundational starting point, is the fact that we remember who Jesus is. We go back to Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? What does he say about himself? And what are the implications of that? And one way I want to show this as an example is to go to the gospel, and specifically the gospel of John. Because in each gospel, we have the good news, and it ends with the story of the good news of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And one important aspect of unpacking that narrative for the gospel writers, especially for the gospel of John, is he answers the question along the way, who is in control? As Jesus is going to Jerusalem and going to the cross, who's in control of this situation? It's a big question that especially the gospel of John answers. And when you get to John 19, which I'm about to read to you in a minute, but to set it up, He's trying to answer that question. He wants you to ask the question, who's in charge? Because the narrative is dominated at this point with this trial that Jesus is on. And there's two powerful groups that are debating, what are we going to do with Jesus? What is his charge? And should we execute him? And who's in charge of executing him and crucifying him on the cross? And you have this powerful religious group and a powerful secular uh, Roman emperor or uh, pilot governor, that's, that's, and they're debating this, and they're both presented as people and groups of people that have a lot of earthly power, a lot of political power. They are, they are debating a very powerful decision that kind of shows their status. I get to decide what to do with Jesus, and his life hangs in the balance of what I or we get to choose. And let's pick up that story now with this uh, dialogue between these powerful groups over the ears of Jesus. And it says in John 19, 7, the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he, Jesus, must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where did you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? He understands his power and the place he has in society. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Do you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And what does Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, say to that? He says this. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And he puts him in his place. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is the one that has the power. The only reason that Pilate can give an answer in this trial is because God gave him that power, but God can take it away at any moment. Meaning, Jesus is really in control here. Because everything is happening and unpacking according to God's plan. So one of the fundamental confessions of the church in light of this reality, in light of like a theology that comes from the Gospel of John, is we confess that Jesus is Lord. And it's not only a confession of faith, but it's a declaration to every political power that they are not Lord. 
No president is Lord, no political power or party is Lord, no royal family is Lord. None of them are in charge, but Jesus is Lord. And it, it realigns and, 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 and reminds you as a people of God where your allegiances lie. It's not to a political power. It's not to an earthly ruler. It's to Jesus. He is the one that's in control, and he is the one that we are laying down our lives for. Now, as I mentioned, there was a sermon series where I unpacked for six weeks some of the implications of this reality, that when you declare Jesus as Lord, that's a powerfully, incredibly political statement. That's what you're doing, and we unpacked all the implications of that, getting into a full sermon where I punched right and said, these are the idols. If you lean right, these are your idols. These are your issues. And the next sermon, we punched left, and these are your idols. These are the things that the Christian faith would push back on, and then we pivoted to distinctively Christian ways of thinking about public theology that come from different traditions, from, from a Catholic tradition and a Dutch Reformed tradition and an African-American church tradition and the beloved community. And we looked at unique ways that this, this type of way of thinking distinctively about the Christian faith in a political and public way is something that's been done before, and there's a rich history of that to draw from that we can start to form a community that when we think about our public life and our political leanings, that they are more distinctively Christian rather than secular and partisan. One of the things that's happening here, and I think this is why this continues to be important, is historically churches have, have kind of divided and reorganized for different reasons and different, uh, in different parts of history for different reasons. So if you go back far enough, you, you know that there's a lot of different Protestant churches, and they organized into different denominations. And initially, they did that over things like baptism. They had different views of baptism, or how do you organize or govern a church? And so then you have the Methodists have their way of doing it, the Presbyterians have their way of doing it, the Baptists have their way of doing it, and so they reorganized into these things. A little bit later, another big divide happened in church history, especially American church history, where there was these new ways of thinking about the Bible that were more modern and enlightened, where maybe the miracles weren't literally true or the resurrection wasn't literally true. So there's one group that was kind of going that direction. And another group that said, no, we want to hold to more of a traditional way of understanding the scriptures that Jesus indeed raised from the dead, that the Bible has authority in our life because it's a divine book, and so on and so forth. And so then you had another split that happened in Christianity between mainly mainline churches that took the route of thinking about things more in a modern sense and, and evangelical churches that found unity around the essentials found in the Bible. What I think is happening today, uh, and it started to happen over the last couple of years, is that there's another type of stress that's dividing people of like-minded faith into different tribes. What's happening today is that you have Christians who still have these foundational beliefs in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and, and these foundational theological and doctrinal beliefs that they've had and they've shared for a long, long time. But that no longer seems to be good enough for some Christian churches to hold unity because some people are also saying, no, I, yeah, we agree on the resurrection, but what about this political stance? Or I feel kind of more comfortable right now to be around people that are a little bit more 
progressive in the church or a little bit more conservative in the church. So it doesn't really matter anymore if we share these foundational beliefs together. That's, that's no longer comfortable for my sake of unity. I want to go now with, with people that look at culture and politics the same way as I do. And now another stress point is happening with the church. And one of the things that I want to advocate for uh, as your pastor in that moment is not to choose between those two options because I think Christianity, if we declare that Jesus is Lord, provides a third way, provides a different option. And it's not a centrist option. It's not, it's not an option where you're just trying to please everybody. It's really this type of option that's going to get in everybody's business. And it's the type of option that sometimes seems like it cuts conservative, and sometimes it might seem like it cuts uh, progressive, but you just preach the Bible, and you pray, and you lean into what the scriptures are saying, and however it comes across in the public life, so be it, as long as you are being faithful to Jesus Christ. It's a type of church that still says that the gospel proclamation is one of the most urgent things that we need to hold on to, but that is also not a call for the church to disengage in the public life because we are called by King Jesus to love our neighbor as ourselves, to pursue justice and mercy in our public life so that we can see that our neighbors and our society and our cities would flourish that we're not going to pull out of those things, so we're going to declare the gospel and we're going to lean in. And the way we are going to lean in is that we're not concerned about fitting that Christian gospel-centered box into a progressive or a conservative framework. It just needs to be Christian, period. And however it comes across, it comes across, and so be it. And there is a group of Christians that I think are hungry for that, hungry for the prophetic voice of the Christian church in a way that gets into everybody's business and challenges everybody's idols and calls us to be a new culture and a new society in a distinctively Christian way. Let me give you an example of how this works. So right now, um, in our city specifically, it, it, the, the word, uh, the buzzword is justice, and you want to be involved in justice, and that's a really good thing. I'm glad that we're talking about it. But what does it mean to have a distinctively Christian approach to justice? Because even like if you're motivated by issues of justice in a distinctively Christian way, that's going to help you stay engaged. And what I mean by that is as I talk to people who are getting really fired up about specific issues of justice, sometimes they're fired up about those issues of justice not based on conviction, but because it's a popular view to have. And so they're caught up in this kind of cultural moment where maybe 10 years ago they wouldn't have held this issue as highly as they did, but right now they're kind of caught up in it because it's like it's a popular thing and people might pat me on the back for having this position and that's what kind of motivates them. Or sometimes people are motivated by an issue of justice because they think the outcome of holding a particular view or advocating for a particular view will, will, will advance some type of cause and it's kind of this pragmatic, like it's the time that this is going to work and that's why we're going to lean into it. But the Christian is not motivated by either of those things to activate their causes of justice. We lean into causes of justice simply because Jesus commands us to. It doesn't matter if it's popular. It doesn't matter if it's pragmatic and it works. The only reason we lean into justice is because Jesus is righteous and just 
and he calls us to set the wrongs right, and we are motivated more by the words of Jesus on those causes and not popular opinions or pragmatic outcomes. That's a distinctively Christian posture towards justice, and it is the one that's going to endure. Because if it's dependent on if it's popular, as soon as that cause is unpopular, you're out. But Jesus says it doesn't matter. Stay in. Stay faithful. Do the work that I have called you to do. That's what it looks like, for example, in one realm to do something in a distinctively Christian way. The other implication is that if Jesus is Lord, you're also going to remain in Christian community no matter what. And you're not going to let your political differences uh, divide that. And this brings me to the first charge uh, in, in how we as a Christian uh, community can start to restore our public life. And the first charge is to remember who you are. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the chapter is about believers living in a world that's not their home, where some will even be hostile to your faith. And it is often the case the Bible is emphasizing our Christian identity, reminding us who we are in Christ before there's a call to action. And in 1 Peter, he writes in chapter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He says you are foreigners and exiles. What is an exile? Let's remember what that is. Notice that this identity comes from, if you go earlier in chapter 2, after, after he unpacks that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And this, for the original readers, would have brought to mind uh, the nation of Israel and the calling of that nation to be a light to the world in the Old Testament. Yet, yet another major theme that he brings up that is in the Old Testament as well is the story of exile. Because of the sin of the nation of Israel, God allowed other nations to come into the land and to take God's people to a different land. And many of God's people were carried off to Babylon. And this created a problem. Babylon is not their home. Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is the place for them where they are going to be a light to the world and a blessing to all nations. And what does exile mean now? where you are no longer in the very place where you were going to be in this place and dwell in this place, and from there you were going to be the light of the world. Now you've been uprooted into a place that you didn't choose, and everything is different. So does this mean now the calling is different? And if you go to a passage like Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, it unpacks what the calling of an exile is. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I have carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is the charge to an exile. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And a couple implications I want to unpack from that. Identity and that calling as exiles from Jeremiah 29. Implication number one. Their home will never be with any city or nation that they find themselves in now. They are to think of themselves as exiles 
And that means that their home is far away and they're not there anymore. And that place where God's presence is going to dwell in its fullest sense is something that is to come. And now Peter is taking that identity as an exile and applying it to the New Testament church and saying, you too are not home. You are not in Jerusalem. You are in Babylon. And one of the things that that is helpful to understand here is like right now people are moving and migrating a lot because they start to get uncomfortable in a certain uh, setting because of maybe political differences that they have with their neighbors or things that are going on in that setting. And so they think to themselves, you know what, if I just move to this next place, everything's going to be better. It's going to be a little bit more like Jerusalem. And one of the things that the thinking of an exile has is that you might be, in an earthly sense, slightly more comfortable in one place uh, more than the other, but you never think of, like, I'm just leaving this place because it's Babylon and this place is going to be more like Jerusalem. For an exile, every place is Babylon. You're never going to feel at home. Even if you have some more cultural affinities for a a certain place, there should should still be things about any place that you dwell in that's unsettling because you are not home yet. And that the standards and the framework that people operate by in different settings are still stuff that's not necessarily Christian or just or loving, and that will always make you uncomfortable because you know you are not home yet. And then implication number two is that blessing the nations, or in this case, blessing the place that you are dwelling in, is not put on hold until you finally get home. All right? You are still to be a blessing, no matter where you're at, even as you wait for your true home to come. A part of the Christian faith continues to seek the peace and blessing of the place you're in no matter what. No matter if the place you're dwelling in is having a good kind of role of things in in their cultural moment or if things are, are, are going in a direction that are bad. What should Christians do to bring this home a little bit? During a time in your city when there is unrest, divisiveness, and a higher crime rate, what are we to do when things in our city are not going that well? Well, if we apply Jeremiah to our historical moment and our identity as exiles, we are to do this. Rent and buy a place. Settle down. Work your job and see that it provides not only for your, yourself and your family, but also provides a social good for your city. Get married and make friends. Raise your kids to know the Lord. Love your neighbors and pursue justice through acts of service. Increase the number of people who know and love the Lord and contribute to peace in your city and the flourishing of your neighbors and pray Pray for yourself, pray for your faith community, pray for your city that the Lord would be kind. And remember, remember, the Lord is giving this charge to a people who are in exile. So you can't say, yeah, 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 like be in exile, but right now things kind of stink and things are kind of rough right now. And like, how can you say like all I'm supposed to do is settle down and, and dwell in the city and seek the flourishing of it? Like things, things are bad. But when we remember the original context, the original charge to do these things were to a people who were in exile. They weren't living in an ideal time. 
They didn't move to Babylon because they're like, wow, Babylon, they got some nice coffee shops, walkable neighborhoods, and a lot of Fortune 500 companies. I'm going to Babylon to dwell there. No, they went there against their will. They were forced to live somewhere they viewed as a pagan metropolis filled with their enemies. But nonetheless, the charge was still the same. Love your city. Seek the blessing of the city. See that your neighborhood flourishes and that you work hard for the social good of your city. That was the calling, and the calling remains the same to us because just because things got maybe a little bit harder in the city in the last couple of years does not mean that our identity as exiles is now something we shouldn't think of. The calling, our identity as exiles and our calling as exiles remain the same. But here's charge number two. So if that's true, and we're supposed to think about ourselves as exiles, what is this exile supposed to do in addition to the things that were unpacked in the book of Jeremiah? And first Peter goes on and gives us this charge, and it's essentially this, live a good life. One of the things you're thinking about, like if, I'll, if I'm thinking about bringing restoration to my uh, public life and maybe into the political realities that we're dealing with, like what is a very tangible, practical way that I can do that. And First Peter would say, live a good life. If you don't believe me, just look. Verse 12, verse 15. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And I'll jump down to verse 15, and it says, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. What silences the ignorant talk of foolish people? And if you're going to boil down politics to a summary, wouldn't that be a good one? It's the ignorant talk of foolish people. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Just a lot of blah, 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 blah. And just like you guys are just divisive. You don't know what you're talking about. You're not doing more harm than good. So how do you do something better? How do you, how do you approach the public life and that political discourse where you bring something restorative and refreshing to that? How do you silence the foolish talk of ignorant people, you live a good life according to the will of God. You do what God says. And he gives examples if you read this chapter. He says, practice submission, respect authority, pursue justice, use your freedom for good and not evil, respect everyone, and live as someone who belongs to God. That's what he says. You want to silence the talk of foolish people, that's the way that you live as a person that's been restored and transformed by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you do. And I, I remember hearing another pastor talk about this. Like, it's just a really extraordinary moment where you look at politics, you look at public discourse, and how just low the bar is that if you just are kind, if you just are nice to people, when you talk about politics or your differences, it sticks out. You're like, whoa, what's different about you? And it's just like, I'm just being nice. That's how bad it's gotten, that that being nice and being kind is this transformative light that just is like flashing in front of your neighbors and your coworkers and your family, that instead of just responding to a political difference with nastiness, you're just chill. And you're like, That's not, I'm not willing to break a friendship over this. I have differences, and I'll share with you my opinion that's wrong with yours, but I'm cool with you. 
I'm cool, and we're going to be kind, and we're going to be nice. And one of the ways I think that we need to do this, if you need to sharpen just that particular skill, is start here in the church with your brothers and sisters in Christ to start being towards one another kind and gracious because the reality is, is this church is a politically diverse church. We're not a homogenous church. You guys are all over the place on your political spectrum, and I love that. I love that because the thing that unifies us is not our public life and not our politics, is the lordship of Jesus Christ. But the reality of that is that creates some tension because the rest of the world wants you to, you to pick a side, wants you to turn on one another and be nasty towards one another because you have political differences. But one of the places that it needs to start in kindness and graciousness and compassion towards one another is here in these very pews. Because here's one of the things that's happening. Over the last couple of years, we've been pushed from our reality into these social pods and into more of a virtual uh, Zoom-infested existence, right? Uh, and so our reality went more virtual. And in that realm of, of, of virtual social experience that we've had, things are always turned up a notch. And they seem so divisive and so tribal, and, and people are so nasty towards each other. And it seems that like whatever opinion you have, it seems that communities are turning on one another and there's no safe place to come back and to have fellowship and to have community and to have unity. But that's not true. The church is the place where you can do that. This is the place that it starts. You have people that you are worshiping King Jesus with that disagree with you on political issues, and let's start with being kind with one another as we re-engage and as we start to slowly pivot out this pod uh, kind of social experience that we have because of, because of COVID and that was mainly online as we start to come back to the pews, as we start to have coffee with one another, as we start to catch up with one another. It feels kind of awkward. I know some of you feel like, man, I don't know how to do this. I'm out of practice. You're kind of like, it kind of just feels like a big junior high dance. This is like, this is so awkward. I don't know what to do, right? How do I have these conversations, right? And, that's, and it's just like you're hesitant to start leaning into things with one another because it's like, is my brother and sister in Christ going to cancel me? Are they going to be upset with me? Like, what's going to happen when I open up about my experience of the last two years and the ways that I have processed these things? This is going to be a safe place to share all those things as long as Jesus is Lord and as long as the, the thing that unifies us isn't our public life, but it's King Jesus and the gospel. It's, the reality is, is that despite your differences, you still have the same Lord and we come to the same table and we believe in the same gospel. And that is a powerful reality, so powerful that united Jew and Gentile together when the church was born. And it does have the power to unify these different public tribes that people are breaking up in. It will unify us. And when you lean into these conversations, if you haven't done it yet, you will be blessed by just leaning in, not looking for a fight, but I'm going to lean into this conversation. I'm going to listen. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to be compassionate when these things start happening. And one of the things you'll start hearing is just how unique everybody's story is of these last couple of years that we've all went through. Maybe you're more progressive, and I want you to be able to sit down with a conservative as you're coming back to this table and to these assemblies and to these groups and hear how tough it is to live in such a progressive city. 
I want you to hear them talk about how, I don't know if you've ever done this. So there's a New York Times article, right? And uh, there's, there's this like map that they give you where you put in your zip code and it tells you how politically diverse your, your neighborhood is. Uh, and if, if you put in the zip code for the church, what do you think it's gonna be? It's 96% Democrat, 96%. So hardly a politically diverse uh, uh, place. And some of you come from more rural settings or grew up in more rural settings and it's the reverse, right? So if you start to lean into conversations with conservatives, I think it's good for you to listen to, like it's hard to be a minority anything when you're surrounded by a different viewpoint. Ask a person of color what it's like to be in white, a white space. It's the same thing. Ask a conservative what it's like to live in St. Paul and you're gonna hear like it's kind of tough. And I want you, if you're more progressive, to lean into that. But if you're conservative, I also want you to lean into those conversations with your progressive friends, and you can hear maybe they grew up in a rural setting, and they have some family members that took a hard right turn. Hard right turn. And now that now there may be shared faith is something that doesn't unite them together anymore, and they don't know how to talk to their dad or their brother or their neighbor anymore that about these things because this cultural and political idol took them on a different pathway and they're struggling with what to do with that. Conservatives, progressives, get in the same room, around the same table, be kind, lean in, and listen. This is a place where you can do that. The other thing I've noticed is that people are weary, people are weak. Uh, we have a lot of folks that work in um, the medical community in this church and leaning in and one of the things you're going to be blown away by is their experiences in the hospitals. Especially right now with this wave, it is tough and they're reaching their breaking point. I want you to lean in those conversations and listen. Many people work in education and some of you are on the side where you're a teacher, or you're an administrator and others of you are on the side because you're a student or you're a parent of the student and you're going to get in the same room and you had different experiences and different pressures, and maybe you even frustrated one, one another a little bit, but then you're gonna share about that, and you're gonna be kind with one another, and you're gonna be like, man, that's tough. This has been a weary couple years. It's not only just the political realities and the, the, the stresses from COVID that we've all experienced, but that has been piled onto the normal sufferings of everyday life that didn't just turn off when these bigger realities came about too. You're still gonna lean into conversations where people are gonna share, I lost a family member this year, and breaks my heart. I am struggling with getting pregnant, and I had another miscarriage. So it's not just politics. It's not just these hot cultural issues that people are dealing with. People are mourning because we still live in a broken world where they're suffering, and disease and things aren't the way they ought to be. And you're going to lean into those conversations yet again. And some people just feel spiritually low. Man, you might feel like this last two years has been terrible on my faith and my relationship with God. And I don't want to come back to church because these people have it all together and I'm just so low and I'm so weary. The reality is, is that many of us took a hit on our spiritual life in the last couple of years and things have been tough, and things have been a struggle with our faith. I want you to remind you that so much of what we even do in our liturgy is a declaration into this type of reality about how people feel 
and remind you of what's true in the gospel. And I was reminded of this, and I want to close with something weird. I'm going to close with the call to worship, which happens at the beginning of the service. But I'm going to close this sermon with the call to worship. And the reason why that is is to remind you, as you are out there and you're, and, and you're living this life in the public, and you're, you're living this life where you're experiencing the political divisiveness of our moment, and you're living a life where like, you're just weary and you're tired uh, about, about all these things, and you're mourning loss, and you're, you're experiencing suffering, and, you're, and your spirituality just took a dive, and you're coming here in this place, and you're wondering, like, am I welcome here? My brothers and sisters in Christ, am I welcome here? Like, is, is the gospel still enough to invite me in? And that's exactly what the point of a call to worship is, is to remind you no matter what your experience is, no matter what you are feeling in this moment, this is a place where you are called yet again into the grace of God, and he welcomes you. And your brothers and sisters in Christ, they welcome you. That is what unites us. So I have this uh, call to worship that, that uh, just brought me so much joy that I want to end with. It comes from Pastor Ray Ortland, And this is what, again, Christian, you are invited into. If the public life this week has made you weary and you're mourning, you're just tired, you need comfort, this is your call to worship from Ray Ortland. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to whoever will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, again, what gospel reality is. Weary, mournful, broken people are invited yet again to the grace of God who loves you and invites you in and unites us in that God.